Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and I am so honored to be joined each episode with someone who I usually consider a thought leader, someone who is just representing black folks in a certain way in America. I say usually. I made an exception today with my guest. (laughs) This is a dear friend of mine today joining us, Dr. Anthony C. Hood. He serves as Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion officer for First Horizon Bank. We're going to talk a little bit more about what Dr. Hood does, but he is a longtime, old-time friend. Welcome to the History of Being Black, Dr. Hood. Thank you for having me, Eunice. Honored to be here. It, it's funny because you had so much to say before we pressed record. I was just testing testing you out. He can turn out, he can cold switch, y'all. He can cold switch. That'd be a episode. <laughs> can we all? <laughs> we better. <laughs> we, we, might we talk were born about multilingual. <laughs> so, Dr. Hood, um, I, I just mentioned what you do as far as your title. But tell me, break it down for me, what it is that you do at First Horizon Bank and tell me why you do it. Yeah, so at First Horizon Bank, I am taking the lead on developing a brand new strategy for advancing the organization's overall goals um, through diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, you know, that involves making sure that we have a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workforce. Uh, but it is also about procurement and, you know, how we uh, engage with minority women and diverse uh, business owners as, as our suppliers. It's also about how we make our grants and being inclusive in that, as well as being inclusive uh, in our banking practices and our lending deposits. So it's really a 360-degree view of how we can advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and ultimately, how does that promote the sustainability of the overall bank. So it's such a needed position and opportunity you have, I would think, for a lending a financial institution because so many times Black folks have been on the very, very short end of the stick when it comes to lending opportunities, whether it's to purchase a home, whether it is to purchase a business or invest in a business. And so how much of what you do daily helps to influence those decisions? Yeah, so I think a lot. You know, I've only been there for a couple of months, but right now what I'm really focused on is looking at our HR practices. So how do we identify talent to come into the organization, the talent that we do have in the organization? How do we make sure that we're investing in their development? And then how do we make sure that, you know, we can get, you know, racial and ethnic minorities, women, you know, people of different sexual orientations, veterans, how do we make sure that everybody has an equitable opportunity to rise up the ranks should they want to, to to be in our senior leadership of the organization? Through all of that, it's really about diversity because we want to make sure that our workforce is reflective of the communities that we serve uh, because people, you know, have that background. That can really drive innovation. It can drive better decision making. And then we can better empathize with the people that we're trying to serve. So focusing on creating that kind of 
environment just really makes us, you know, better able to support and serve our customers, but then also be a good citizen to our community. Now, I've had the opportunity to speak on a diversity and inclusion panel with you uh, before, and I always, um, you know, I always take exception to the, the, the terminology. A lot of folks are really, really, you know, fattening up those departments right now, especially because that's the hot button terms right now, diversity and inclusion and equity. And so I always struggle with um, the idea of being invited to discuss diversity and inclusion. And I want you to speak on this because this is your career and your job because diversity and, and inclusion and me being a black woman, it would, for me, uh, would mean that the standard, right, is a straight white male. Cisgender white male is the standard and anything that is not that is diverse and inclusive. So the terminology itself kind of throws me off, but we have to accept that that is what uh, 99.99% of the country was built on was white, straight, Christian men. Yeah, so I think you bring up some good points, which is one of the reasons why, you know, you're seeing a lot of folks, a lot of companies that are moving from just looking at diversity, having a chief diversity officer or having an office of diversity to also include equity and inclusion because it's a lot more encompassing. So let me be clear about how we define these terms. So diversity, we look at as oftentimes representation. So all these things around race, gender, sexual orientation, things that you mentioned. But inclusion is about do people feel like they actually, you know, belong in an organization? So you're hearing a lot of people talk about belonging. You're also uh, hearing a lot of conversation around are people satisfied with where they work? You know, is it free from microaggressions uh, and conflict and things like that? At least the bad forms of conflict. Some forms of conflict can be good because that drives more innovation. And then this last part, equity, is about fairness, about access to opportunities for training, development, and then equitable pay, fairness, things like that. So those three things working in concert is really where we need to be headed, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So going back to what you said, like we know that a lot of our organizations had as a standard all these different categories that you said, white men, cisgender, you know, Christian, you know, all these different labels, anything to that is diverse. So when we talk about diverse, it's diverse compared to what? Um, and so a lot of organizations, it, banking included, we're now trying to make sure that all people can be included, no, regardless of race, gender, and all these other things. So do you think that's something that adults can actually learn how to do? I think we can, you know, I, we always talk about hate or racism is taught. When when you're dealing with people that are of the age of looking to have a career at, at your company or just companies in general, do you think people, have you seen that the efforts of people with diversity and inclusion programs, have you seen that, can you change people's hearts and minds to to move forward in a different way? So, I mean, I think that's why you have seen a lot of focus on in inclusive and in, um, unconscious bias training and things like that, which going to a, a one hour or one day training is not going to change people's minds and hearts and things like that. But a lot of people just they just lack exposure to people who are not like them or they've never actually had their preconceived notions and ideas challenged. So a lot of it really is about education and it is, it is about awareness. You know, a lot of things that I think today are different from what I thought when I was 17, 18 years old because I've experienced life and so many other different things. So I think a lot of what we do is how do we give people the education necessary for them to think or rethink their preconceived notions, which then can have an impact on their attitudes, 
which then can have an impact on their behavior. So it's this change from cognitions, the way you think, to your attitudes, how you engage with other people, and then to your actual behaviors. So I think there is a pathway to get people to change their behaviors through education. But it has to be repeated. It has to be sustained. Right. Um, and then people have to want to be able to do it. Now, exactly. some people, you're just not going to change. You know, it just is what it is. I'm wanting to, right? Because even when you talk about unconscious bias, I, for me, and, and obviously as a black woman, I think when, when moments of unconscious bias are brought to the table, I think it's obvious. You know, it's like, yeah, I understand. You may not have realized that's what that meant or that's why that happened or why you felt that way. But how do you reach people to have them to have an understanding when the first reaction tends to be defensiveness? You know, this thing of, well, I didn't have slaves. Well, I'm not racist. How do you get people to just say, well, let's just look at just actual, when you talk about systemic racism, institutionalized racism, it was taught from birth. And so there's no way you would have thought something different because it wasn't your situation. Yeah. So I think that's why people just need to spend time with each other. Like it's not something that's going to be changed overnight, but I think we have to be very intentional about bringing people in contact with people, again, who are not like them so that they can be like, oh, I never even thought about that. You know, so many people have had this story where, you know, they felt some way about people who, you know, were were lesbian or who were gay until their son or their daughter came out and they brought somebody home of the same sex. And now they're faced with a decision like, okay, all these different things that I've thought about somebody that was of a different sexual orientation than me, when it actually happens in my own home, how do I deal with that? And then through that exposure, you realize like, you know, what I thought before was totally different than what was actual reality. Same way about race. There are a lot of people who just never grew up around people of a different race than them. And then when they go off to college or they actually get into the workforce and they realize like, oh, you know, the things that I thought before, uh, just they were stereotypes, but they were not the truth. So I think what we have to build is these touch points, but then we also have to build, you know, an environment where people assume the best and not the worst in others. And I think about those people who, as you mentioned, probably have not had a lot of exposures. White people are unique in that they really don't have to have exposure to a lot of different cultures in order to matriculate and be successful in their lives. This is a very unique opportunity they have where any other person in America, whether it's school, whether it's higher education, whether it's lending, some, at some point, you're going to have to uh, interact with different people uh, in order to achieve some things. But what about our role in protecting our white friends? I think this past year, we saw a lot of white people who said, but I have black friends. And um, I know as having white friends, I don't tell them, I don't talk to them about the black struggle or I haven't, you know what I'm saying? It's like whatever our interactions are it's from where we met or where we're starting today. And I feel like sometimes we have done our white family, friends and, and, and neighbors a disservice by not being honest with them about the black experience. You know, going back to what you said earlier about code switching, I think there was a time where I did a whole lot of code switching. You know, one way with my with my friends, but then when I went to work, I switched it differently. And I think I'm at a place now where it's like, I really want to be my authentic self. Like, <laughs> I'm going to give you all of who Anthony C. Hood is, this, this cat from the West Side that grew up, you know, in, you know, seeing a whole bunch of other different things, you know, I, I think that's the place where we have to go is that people can be authentic and bring their full selves to their situation so that, okay, if you want to understand what a black man is, I'm going to show you what a black man is. But a lot of times that does 
you know, challenge the stereotypes of what they may have only seen on TV because they actually never had prolonged engagements with somebody that is both black, but also educated, but also grew up in a community that saw a whole lot of different things. So I don't know if that's an easy answer to the question that you brought up, but authenticity, I think, is the place where a lot of us are trying to get to. And then authenticity, I think, breed empathy. And ultimately, if we're going to resolve a lot of issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, we have to create empathy. So how did you get to that place? What do you think caused you to get to that place? I know as I've gotten older, I have less energy to pretend. And so what led you to start, you know, to not code switch as much? I will say personally, watching you through your um, matriculation and doctoral program and becoming Dr. Hood, and now you get these really great opportunities to speak and engage people in corporations and these big time, you know, opportunities you get. And and you're letting your hair grow out and the beard is growing out. And I mean, so was, do you think it was an age thing or do you think you just you just felt like, hey, deal with it. This is me. Yeah. You know, you know to be honest with you, I'm still trying to figure that out. I think I'm getting old and honorary. <laughs> you, think? you know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I'll be 46 this year and I'm kind of like, you know what, like this, this is what you're going to get. Like, I, I really ain't got time for it anymore. So I think that's part of it. But other part, I think I have to recognize, you know, the privilege that I have now of I'm a, I'm a lot more established in who I am real wise, professional wise and personal wise. And I think that plays a huge role on it. When I was 22 years old and barely making any money and trying to climb a corporate ladder, trying to get opportunities, you never want anything to get in the way because you miss a paycheck, you might be out on the street. So there was a lot more pressure to conform and to make sure I had the low haircut and, you know, dress a certain way and put a tie on because I'm trying to make it. And, you know, I think I've gotten to the place now where I feel like I got some good career opportunities. Like, this thing at the bank don't work out. That's fine. I'll go get another job. You know, I go back to academia. And so I think that gives you a lot more freedom to be like, you know what? I'm going to bring my full self to work. And if you don't like it, I'm going to go somewhere else. Thankfully, I've been in environments where I can be my authentic self and nobody shuns that. So I think it's my maturity, but I think it's also the maturity of other people that we work around. Right. So what, what would you advise a young black man just starting out? Right. So I agree with you that, you know, I went natural doing the news in Alabama and was like, and now what? No, who goes do who go say something? You know, But, right. you know, I don't think I would have done that as a 20 something year old. And so how do you advise a young person who is just starting out? How, how, should they kind of pay more attention to what others have deemed acceptable? Or how would you advise a young person in that way? You know, that's a good question, uh, Eunice, because there's a part of me is like, you know, if I can go back, I would be a lot more authentic. But that's a lot easier for you and I to say. You know, because I tell this person, this young person to be authentic. They like, yeah, I would, <laughs> I went to work and was right. authentic and they fired my butt. <laughs> I would tell young news anchors who were talking about their hair, I would go to these uh, black um, journalism conferences and it would be entire seminars of black women who want, who are afraid to wear their natural hair on the air. And the thing that I would always advise younger anchors who, or reporters who wanted to get the opportunity, who felt like they needed to look a certain kind of way to get opportunities and it didn't include their natural hair. What I said to them is they will not understand what you're doing because they've never seen you before. The most important thing, so much more important than your hair is 
is being great at your job. If you are great yeah. at what you do and you are indispensable, they will have to figure out how to understand the stuff that comes with you. And I think so many times we get hung up on, oh, well, I had locks or I had this. And it's like, but were you great at the job? Because they will figure out how to be okay. You're right. You're absolutely right about it. But what is your, um, when you think about all the things you have to do in your position, to me, it sounds daunting because like I said, I think, how do you change adults' hearts and minds? And especially in such a, a specialized and very important sector like financial lending, do you, what's your favorite part and what's the most challenging part of, of what you do now uh, in your current role? I actually went to school to, to learn how to do strategic management. Um, and that's what I taught for nine years at UAB when I was a professor there. But I didn't really get an opportunity to actually do strategic management. Like I'm teaching it, but I didn't get a chance to really do it. And sometimes you feel like a fraud. Like you have that imposter syndrome where I'm teaching people these cases about, you know, Costco and Walmart and how you run a, a, a large company. And I'm actually never done that before. And so for me, I'm actually getting that opportunity to do the thing that I was trained how to do is actually develop strategy, implement strategy and get people's buy-in on the strategy that we're developing. And so for me, that's the best part of my job. It's also the most difficult part because, again, you got to get people's buy-in on a strategy. And particularly when you're trying to get, you know, people maybe to do something that's less unfamiliar to them. And so I think every day is really you're implementing what you know, but also trying to figure out something that you don't know. But but I love it. I love it. So you, you use this term imposter syndrome, and I've been reading up on that because I think on some level – all of us kind of feel like, okay, I, I'm telling these people I can do this and I know I can do it, but who says I know how to do it? And I think black people struggle maybe a little bit more. I think women struggle a little bit more. I think people who have been marginalized um, in society feel like, hey, I'm just as good, if not better. But there's still that little pull in the back of your mind that says, okay, but how do I know? And what if they find out I don't know? Um, how do you work through those moments um, when you, like you said, you've been teaching it, you've never done it. And, and now that you're doing it, you're coming up against things you've never done before. But that's the fun part is learning how to do it. What if somebody is just struggling with feeling like a fraud? That's, that's yeah. a deep question. But I mean, fix it for us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's good. So a couple of things. That's, one, I think you got to have people in your corner that will cheer you on. You know, that'll tell you how good you look like, you know, your grandma always tell you like, oh, baby, you so you so nice. You look good. Even <laughs> when you didn't, <laughs> they was going to hype you up, you know, so having people around you that's that's going to hype you up, I think is important. But it goes back to what you said earlier, like you just got to be great, like just yeah. be good at what you do. And so I think both of us come from a tradition where we just figure stuff out like this is what we've done our whole life. Like we've always been in situations where, you know, we're trying to learn something new and, you know, you don't really feel like you're the best. But you you stay up late, you get up early, you go to conferences, you call people up, you go sit with people. Oh, wait a minute. Let me write this down. Hold on. Let me write this down. Okay, wait. Stay up late. Okay. <laughs> and then you get up early. Can <laughs> you be going early. to conferences? <laughs> <laughs> you do all the things. And, uh, you know, that old saying, you know, you fake it till you make it. You know, I don't know that we're necessarily faking it. You know, I think there's a lot of benefit in saying, like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I try not to act like I know something I don't know. You're like, I'm just honest. Like, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know, but I'm going to go get an answer. And I will go and get an answer and come back and be like, okay, so that thing that you mentioned yesterday, this is how we're going to do it today. Right. And I think that's the world that we're in right now because things are changing so fast with technology and AI, machine learning, and, you know, just all the disruptions. Everybody's trying to figure something out. 
you know, nobody stays in a job more than 18 months now. It's like you getting moved to a different assignment, you losing a job, you getting a new promotional opportunity. And so everybody's trying to figure it out. So I think it creates an environment where it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know right now, but I'll get the answer for you. And then you go figure it out. I love that you said the, the first part also about having a, a team that hypes you up. Now, be realistic, right? But hypes you up. I have one of the best hype women I have ever had. And to the point of, I find her ridiculous. But I remember when Steve Harvey first came out with um, At Like a Woman, Think Like a Man. And like, I don't even uh-huh. think it was on, on the shelves yet. And my girlfriend called me and she said, girl, I saw Steve Harvey just wrote a book. I think if he writing books, you need to write a book. And I said, now that's really you. So you feel <laughs> that because Steve Harvey wrote a book that I should write. You know, and it's, she will take these moments and she'll see somebody doing something big and great. And she'll call me and say, you know, I saw that. And I thought you should be doing that. And she is always one of my biggest cheerleaders and supporters. But, you know, when something doesn't work out, she's also the first person I call. And we just get to laugh about it. And I think people don't realize how important it is to, yeah, uh, align yourself with goal-oriented people. Align yourself with people who are working to, to achieve something. They say if you're around nine broke people, you will be the 10th one. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And also, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. Go back to your example. Like, what, you've written, what, three books now? Oh, but who's counting Dr. Hood and half? <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when, so let's go there. Like, you know, when it was time for you had this unction, I don't know where it came from. You know, your friend saying you should be an author. Like, you didn't know how to be an author, right? Not at all. Still figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just do it. I just do it. And that's the thing. You Sometimes you have to build the plane while you're flying it. And it's mm-hmm. scary. And you are writing the instruction manual as you are figuring it out. But you know what? I tell people, if you're doing it right, it shouldn't look like anything you've ever seen before. And so I think so many times young people, especially because they have so much exposure to other people's perceived lives through social media, they try to make it look like something they've seen. And it's like, listen, just jump out there and then people will be looking at you. Oh, what was that thing you used to say all the time on, on online? Do it anyway. Do it anyway. That, well, and that's, anyway. I want you to talk about that. Doing it anyway. You have a family um, that you, you know, I, I have a family of dogs, but you have actual family with humans. And so when you are taking these new opportunities or you're branching out or you're going back to school or getting more education, do you feel an additional pressure because you have these young women that are looking up to you or even that you have to support these young women in their efforts and dreams? How does that balance out from your own personal aspirations and goals with being a family man? Man, Eunice, uh, it's scary to be honest with you. But I do, I do think often on what you said, like do it anyway. Like I really kind of internalized that, you know, when I first heard you say that, because I had a really good job years ago at the phone company. Like I was at AT&T, like nobody leaves AT&T, at least not willingly. Um, mm-hmm. But then I had this unction that I wanted to get a PhD. And so, you know, to leave a six figure job to be a broke PhD student, you know, for when, you when know, you X number of years. Looking at you to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, so and, how did you do it? And when I left, I had a newborn. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> my daughter was born in March and I got the call when I was in the hospital with my newborn baby in my arm. And they was like, you've been accepted to the University of Alabama's PhD program. You ready? You excited? I'm like, hell no, I'm not excited. I'm scared. <laughs> I don't know what. Like, you know, but I did it anyway. And going into a PhD program, again, that imposter syndrome came up like, you ain't no PhD. Like, you can't be no doctor. Like, who does that? You know, but I did it anyway. 
and then getting on faculty at UAB, like dealing with that imposter syndrome. And then can I be a tenure faculty member? And so you just put one step, you know, in front of the other. And then you eventually start to be like, you know what? I can do this. And so when this opportunity came up last year, you know, when somebody reached out to me, it's like, hey, you ever thought about being a chief diversity officer? I'm like, actually, I have not. It's like, we think you'd be good at it. I'm like, me? Really? I didn't see myself in that role and really took other people around me saying like, you actually been doing this for the longest. This work that you've been doing at UAB around inclusive innovation and all this other kind of stuff and being an advocate for people in communities and low to moderate income communities and neighborhood revitalization, advocating for people to hire people of color. Like you've actually been a chief diversity officer. It, you just didn't have the title. And so it, it took people around me. Again, those, those people to hype me up like, bro, you need to do this. <laughs> take this opportunity because again my daughters need to see that too they saw me as an academic but to see me now in this role in a bank i think it was important for them to see that i love it you know i love to see black men shining and every time before uh the pandemic i would be out at different events as a single woman networking and smoozing and i would see dr hood and i would say dr hood how does your wife like you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You like like uh, today because you be networking and smoozing more than me. And I ain't got nobody looking for me at my house. But it's a balance, yeah. right? It's a balance. It's it's a balance. It's uh it's teamwork and it's understanding. You know, I'm able to do all those different things because, you know, my, my wife is a homemaker. And so that's that's something that we had to agree on is that, you know, she's going to take, you know, the lead on making sure my kids get to dance practice and gymnastics and things like that and helping them with homework while I'm out networking events, serving on boards and stuff like that. That does take me out of the home a lot. So I have to be very intentional about when I am at home, making sure that I'm spending time with my wife and my kids. And so, again, it's a partnership, you know, that it, it doesn't work for everybody, but but it works for us. Let me tell you, that's a whole nother episode. Like <laughs> going out and wanting to get it. I'm going to just say this as a single black woman. It's a different episode. We ain't going to do it today. But I'm, I've always been inspired by your family's um, structure. And like I said, knowing you for many years and seeing how your life and career has changed. And I've always been curious about it because I think a lot of times as single black women, we tend to be independent and upwardly mobile. And our black men who are our uh, career and education um, or oriented, they tend to want to go and gather and set it up and let me get it together first before I come back and get you. Whereas we're like, but I can help you get there faster. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I think a lot of times our, our black men don't really, you know, understand that we can actually be useful in, in the dream. But you know what? That's another episode. That's another episode, Dr. Yeah, we so don't, we don't call it episode hunting and gathering. Right. And, and bring me something back. <laughs> and bring me back a two piece. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things you mentioned. I, I, you, every year I used to, I didn't really do one this year, do it anyway. And a lot of times people would look at me and my career changes and different things I would just jump out there and do. And they would say, you have no fear. You're fearless. You're so brave. And I said, you know, I'm scared every time I do anything, but I do it anyway. And so that was the whole point is you're never not going to be afraid. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to lose enough weight. You're never going to be young enough. You're never going to be old enough. You're never going to know enough people. There's never going to be a scenario where it's going to be time. You just have to do it anyway. At the end of every episode, we like to leave our listeners with an action item. Hashtag be the change. We love talking to thought leaders about being black in America and the history of being black and the future of being black. But we also want to leave our listeners with something that they feel excited about that they can do right now. Dr. Hood, what would you offer our listeners as a hashtag be the change moment? You know, I'm going to leverage what you said. 
do it anyway, you know, because I've talked about imposter syndrome, not feeling like you check all the boxes, but do it anyway. Do it with the fear. You know, if, if you're afraid, that probably means that you're taking a risk and that's what you need to do, particularly in this kind of environment. So lean into the fear. Uh, do it anyway. And then when you encounter a situation where you don't know what you're doing, figure it out and get some hype, hype men and women around you to tell you how good you are. And it'll all work out. I was going to say, we pick with each other and mess with each other, but we are in a circle of hype men for each other of, I see you. I see you, Dr. Hood. <laughs> Keep well, sure. sure. <laughs> I so appreciate you sharing some of your time with me and with our listeners of the history of being black. Hopefully you'll come back and hang out with us some more. You have a lot that I want to talk to you about. So hopefully you will answer the phone when I call. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Until next time, y'all, please stay safe. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode of The History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find The History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and Say It Loud Network production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.